Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode of This Week in FCPA, we take a look at the DOJ's new guidelines for the determination of an inability of a company to pay a fine or penalty. We take a bit of a deep dive into the NBA and its imbroglio around China, the issues of free speech, the ability to express oneself, and of course, the Chinese hysteria over Hong Kong. Uh, named in an FCPA investigation, well, uh, if the company gets it wrong, there's no defin- defamation case for you if you are an uh, employee. The um, SEC calculation and length of time to uh, award whistleblower awards uh, comes under scrutiny. We take a look at that. What is the intersection of compliance and technology? Well, it turns out it's all about culture, which leads into our next article. We discuss what is the chief compliance officer's role in corporate culture. There's a new interest group theory of anti-corruption enforcement and the extension of Caremark duties to boards. We preview a new five-part series, podcast series that comes out next week, where Jay joins me to take a look at corporate culture. We discuss the upcoming baseball playoffs, but Jay, of course, tries to make it about the Patriots. All on this week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox the Compliance Evangelist, and the Voice of Compliance, back with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitor for This Week in FCPA, episode 175 for the week ending, October 11th, 2019, the NBA Steps in It edition. Uh, Jay, you probably saw that the Astros' inexorable march towards the World Series uh, took two missteps, but that's okay. We're in Houston for Game 5 tonight. Garrett Cole's on the mound. The NBA seems to have them self-induced imbroglio that the president has now inserted himself in. But we had a lot of uh, compliance and ethics stories this week, so you want to wave to your fans and then hit it? Yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, Let's go to this, and we'll uh, circle up at the end with the NBA. Uh, This comes to us from our good friend Matt Kelly. And who is he, Tom? The coolest guy in compliance. The coolest guy in compliance, Uh, Matt writes in his blog, Radical Compliance, about new guidance on the inability to pay penalties. The Justice Department has published fresh guidance about how it will evaluate a company's claims that it can't afford to pay monetary penalties. Assistant Attorney General Brian Benskowski announced the new guidance Tuesday while giving a speech in New York. Quote, where legitimate questions exist regarding a company's inability to pay, the government will consider a range of factors, he said. The factors include the company's ability to raise capital, 
the circumstances giving rise to the organization's current financial condition, significant likely collateral consequences of the fine or penalty to the company, and whether the proposed fine or penalty will impair the ability to pay restitution. The memo to prosecutors includes an 11-point laundry list of financial data that companies will be expected to supply. One crucial point per Benskowski's memo is that inability to pay claims will only be considered after the company and prosecutors agree on the settlement of the case. Moreover, uh, this guidance is useful. The U.S. sentencing guidelines do address the subject of inability to pay in sections 8C2.2 and 8C3.3, but those sections mostly talk about the court going below recommended penalties or guidelines. So ultimately, um, the sentencing guidelines do make clear that a penalty should not be so large that it endangers the company's ability to pay. Benskowski stressed that point again in his speech on Tuesday. So in other words, a penalty should only be reduced by the minimum amount necessary to give restitution to victims and to keep companies viable. Any thoughts on your part, Tom? So um, you're right, Jay. This uh, this actually is, is not a new concept. Uh, I have seen this at play. We have seen this at play in other enforcement actions. But I think this uh, really just uh, kind of standardizes the rules. And one of the things it seems like Brian Minchikowski is attempting to do is have a little more transparency so that everyone knows uh, what the rules are uh, kind of going forward. Um, uh, nothing really new here, but I think a, kind of a certainly welcome for everyone to understand this is the, the map roadmap if you have uh, that issue going forward. All right. Next up, we have a story from Haley Conniff in Law 360. It's entitled Ex-Biomed Employee Can't Sue Over FCPA Firing, Says the Seventh Circuit. A former biomed employee who was fired for his contacts with a corrupt distributor in Latin America can't sue his ex-employer for defamation, the Second Circuit ruled. Uh, they ruled on Tuesday, sorry, finding that Biomet listing him as a risk to the company's compliance with anti-bribery and anti-corruption laws does not constitute defamation. In 2002, you may remember that the Indiana-based medical device company entered a deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice to resolve criminal and civil charges the company, that the company violated the FCPA. Per the agreement, Zimmer Biomet Holdings later distributed a list of individuals who posed a risk to the company's compliance with anti-corruption and anti-bribery laws. The former employee, Alejandro Yeats, who was employed by the company's Argentina subsidiary and terminated in 2015, made the list because of his ties to a distributor who had bribed doctors. In a company statement, Yeats said was suspended in connection with the corruption investigation and said that none of the facts Yeats attempts to raise are disputed, and whether he actually engaged in misconduct would disprove the facts of his suspension, the panel said, and as such, the statement is not actionable. During a DOJ investigation into the company's dealings in Latin America and Chinese doctors, federal investigators looked into Yates' communications with the distributor but didn't interview him according to suit. All of his interactions with the distributor were approved by a legal department, he claimed, but was ultimately terminated. And recently, back in 2007, rather 2017, the DOJ concluded a second investigation 
finding that Biomet hadn't complied with the terms of its 2012 agreement and hitting the company with more penalties of another $30 million. The company then entered a second deferred prosecution agreement that referenced several instances of Yeats' conduct according to the suit. So uh, we've got another recidivist and an ex-employee not getting any uh, love with uh, what the company said about him. So, Jay, um, if I could just uh, say there was a case out of Texas a couple of years ago called Witte versus Shell, and it was uh, decided by the Texas Supreme Court. And the Texas Supreme Court held there was a qualified privilege that companies had when they engaged in an internal investigation uh, and turned that report over to the government so that uh, Mr. Witte claimed he was liable and defamed uh, because it claimed he'd engaged in bribery and corruption. He said he had not. And he said that uh, publication to the Department of Justice was enough to uh, give him a, an action. The Texas Supreme Court uh, said, no, uh, you don't. So now we've had two uh, employees who have uh, tried to sue, claiming that they um, had some sort of uh, a right or, or rather some sort of injury because of an internal investigation. Jay, if I could tie this to one of the other articles uh, that we're going to talk about today, and that's an article in the Harvard Law Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulations um, entitled The Reverse Agency Problem in the Age of Compliance. And it's by uh, two professors, uh, one who's uh, Asaf Eckstein, and the other I won't even try to pronounce his last name. Um, but uh, they really go through and, and talk about a couple of points I think were unrelated in the article, yet they tied them together. One was that um, companies can put a very large amount of pressure on employees to uh, make statements uh, that uh, implicate others uh, with those others really having no protections against those statements. And he pointed to the famous KPMG case in uh, 2003. But the real point of the article was that when uh, statements are made implicating others, most specifically boards of directors, um, the um, uh, the board's officers and board members really have no recourse and that the company will settle the case without uh, referring to them and that, without taking uh, their views into consideration. And they believe that that is, uh, does not pr- provide uh, officers and directors the opportunity or means to prove their innocence or even clear their name since they don't even have a voice in this. So kind of an interesting, uh, uh, I don't want to say critique, but uh, or I, I, sh- I should say I don't want to say complaint, but perhaps critique of those who are named in an investigation. And if you are named, you may be stuck with that, um, as uh, we found with Mr. Yates, and also uh, up to and including the board of directors as the uh, law, uh, Harvard Law School uh, Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Articles, Financial Regulation Articles, uh, suggested. So, Tom, next up, uh, there's an article that seems to be timely talking about a new way to calculate SEC whistleblower awards. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, I think people are becoming more frustrated, Jay, on perhaps not the amount of the awards, but the the length of time it's taken. Uh, I think we've had one at five years now. 
and that just seems like an inordinately lengthy amount of time. There is a um, Senate piece of legislation, not House, but Senate, which requires an award within a year. Um, But this article by Amanda Rose uh, really talks about more than the timing of the award, the quantum of the award or the, or the amount of the award. And she uh, proposes that the amounts be more closely tied to the value of all penalties imposed rather than simply monetary penalties collected. So that could be um, uh, interest. It could be uh, profit disgorgement, reimbursement, a wide variety of other awards. So um, the SEC is really kind of getting critiqued uh, both in the length of time it takes to obtain a whistleblower award and uh, the um, amount that are set. So um, she is uh, a law school professor, I think, at Vanderbilt. Um, so it's interesting that we've uh, we've got this. We have a House piece of legislation to deal with digital realty trust. We have a Senate piece of legislation. The Senate piece of legislation speaks to the uh, speed of the decision by the Securities and Exchange Commission. But uh, here, Amanda Rose or Professor Rose takes a look at the quantum and suggests that there are really some specific amounts uh, that uh, or percentages that should be given uh, based upon uh, her analysis. So uh, I think the discussion around whistleblower awards will certainly continue. The uh, There are several very well-known and prominent whistleblower-based plaintiffs' law firms that handle these cases, and they uh, are typically ex-SEC officials who understand the kind of ins and outs and know these. But I think um, both of these questions, both the timing, the length of time to get an award, and the uh, lack of transparency on the quantum issue are are things that uh, people would like to see a little more clarity from. So uh, next up, we have an article from a good friend of the podcast, Mike Volkov, he writes in his Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. And uh, this week, uh, Mike's looking at technology and compliance and asking, is there a magic bullet at the intersection? And uh, Mike starts off with three quick quotes that I'll read for you. It has become appallingly obvious that our technology has exceeded our humanity, Albert Einstein. The human spirit must prevail over technology, Einstein again. And finally, technology is nothing. What's important is that you have faith in people and that they're basic, good, and smart. And if you give them tools, they'll do wonderful things with them. And that's Steve Jobs. So Mike says that we're now living in an era of rapid technological advancement. And even in some small ways, this affects ethics and compliance. We start with the simple transition from a paper compliance program to an operationalized program that increasingly depends on the effectiveness of automated solutions. The compliance profession is increasingly relying on automated solutions and the impact it's having on compliance. A recent Snavix Global report identified the two most significant predictors in compliance success are senior managers' buy-in and support and automation. At a recent CAMS meeting in Las Vegas, Mike was struck by the language surrounding each and every vendor in the exhibit hall that talked about the company's machine learning and artificial intelligence. Mike predicts that the compliance industry is quickly integrating into a simple compliance platform or dashboard, which consists of the following critical functions, incident data, employee concerns, 
conflict of interest, culture monitoring, third-party risk management, training, and policing management. No matter how you define ethics and compliance or even get into the question of whether a corporation is a person, the ultimate issue is that a company's most important asset is people, meaning the board, senior management, and employees. So you can have all the tech, but if you don't have the right people making decisions, it really won't amount to a hill of beans. So, yeah, Jay, I'm, I'm continually sort of amused by this critique and commentary that, uh, you know, you've got to have a, a lawyer in. You have to have oversight over the tech. Uh, that's been true since the abacus. I mean, it certainly was true in the slide rule. Um, the, and to, to prove the point or Mike's quotes from Albert Einstein, you know, he delivered them in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so uh, there seems to be a fear, uh, particularly lawyers in the compliance space of technology. Uh, they're afraid that's going to supplant them in some way. I mean, it's just horse hockey. And uh, uh, Steve Jobs and Mike Volkoff are absolutely right. It's, it's a tool. Any tech is a tool. AI is a tool. Uh, smart learning is a tool. And there's just um, there's no substitute for the human interaction with a tool. I mean, maybe Skynet will become self-aware in our lifetime. And when it does, you know, perhaps we won't be having this conversation because we'll all be subject to uh, Skynet's uh, social media oversight. But right now, um, there's always going to be the human element uh, in play. So I don't know if Skynet's closer to you over in California or not, but, you know, if it's about to come self-aware, please let us know here in Texas. We'll give you a heads up if it happens. So uh, what what's next on the hot 10 of compliance? So um, we had a new case out of the Delaware Chancery Court that really uh, talked about the duties of a board of directors in a compliance program. And it's from uh, my uh, U of M uh, law school colleague, Kevin LaCroix, although not the same class here, uh, definitely a, a fellow U of M law grad. And uh, his always excellent DNO diary, he takes a look at a case that came out on October 1, uh, Clovis Oncology. Uh, it follows a case uh, earlier this year called Marchand. And Marchand established that a uh, corporation uh, must uh, have oversight over a compliance program, but Clovis uh, Oncology took it a step further and said, not only do you have to have oversight, you have to engage in oversight. So um, slowly but surely, the Caremark duties around compliance are expanding, and simply having a compliance program, having a monitoring system in place is not going to be enough if it all goes down the tubes and the board of directors are sued. I mean, Kevin's angle, of course, is directors and officers liability insurance. So he really has his finger on the pulse of litigation um, where it's civil litigation where uh, there was uh, money involved. And uh, uh, Clovis Oncology had a potential drug in development or drug in development called Roti, uh, Roki and Roki was intended to treat a type of lung cancer. Um, and the issue that a uh, specific issue in this case was whether or not the board of directors had oversight uh, into the clinical tests that were being done. And uh, what the court said was if whatever the highest risk to you is, that's what you need to monitor. And I know that's 
going to be familiar to you, Jay, and anyone else listening to this podcast because that's a risk-based analysis. Well, for this uh, startup drug company, the one and only product they had was this um, uh, lung cancer drug. So that was the highest risk. It's also the the highest uh, business opportunity. But it said that uh, the court said that the board, they had oversight, but they never exercised that oversight. So board of directors, wake up. You need to start overseeing your corporate compliance program. You need to start overseeing your data protection program. You need to start overseeing your data privacy program. There's a wide variety of things you need to actually engage in oversight on. And that means you need compliance expertise on the board for these types of issues. So um, the um, uh, just another step forward in the Caremark uh, duties case, uh, but it's once again focused on the, the requirements of the board of directors to actively engage in oversight of a compliance program, Jay. Interesting stuff, Tom. Um, this week I wanted to share with you that I – continued my current five-part series on uh, corporate compliance insight. And this week, I took a look at who bears the responsibility for culture and what is the extent that the chief compliance officers should be involved in shaping a culture of ethics and driving ethical behavior. It all begins with the response to a simple question, who is responsible for culture in an organization? Within the C-suite level, you may get several responses the CEO, the head of HR, or perhaps even the general counsel. But the duty most often falls to the chief compliance officer, meaning the CCO and the entire compliance function need to be able to coordinate the various inputs and support mechanisms that guide employee behavior. It's important for the CCO to be proactive in the role of shaping culture. The CCO should work to eliminate barriers to aid in driving business success rather than being perceived as the department of no. The CCO can work to coordinate all the activities relating to building a culture in an organization. When managing upward, CCOs have an equally critical role. It's a clear best practice for the CCO to have unfettered access to and provide information to the board regarding compliance and ethics. So what are the warning signs of an unethical culture? They can be a wide variety of behaviors and actions, things like disrespectful attitudes, favoritism, or nepotism and promotions, a large number of anonymous whistleblowers. These are all the kinds of things that a CCO needs to be on top of. And it's up to the CCO to understand and have his or her finger on what culture is, where the challenges lie, and what needs to be done to continually strengthen the culture. So next week, please join me and we'll take a look at how a company can begin to assess its own culture. Jay, there was a um, another article in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, um, references a law law review article entitled Toward an Interest Group Theory of Foreign Anti-Corruption Laws. And it's really almost um, legal philosophy uh, because the the authors, Sean Griffin and Tom Lee, uh, they posit or or they discuss rather why countries would enforce anti-corruption laws against uh, companies not domiciled in their home countries. And, of course, that's one of the largest impacts of FCPA enforcement is non-U.S.-based companies. I think uh, the last count, eight of the top ten awards, uh, FCPA awards, were non-U.S.-based companies. 
And so they really take a look at this, and they come up with something they call the interest group theory. And the interest group theory says it's not the country that has the interest in enforcing anti-corruption laws, but actually business groups. And the business groups have that interest because they uh, believe that enforcement of such laws uh, levels the playing field. Obviously, the FCPA was the first such law passed in 1977, but it was really the business lobby which achieved uh, moving these laws out to other countries through the OECD convention and other treaties. Obviously, we have a wide number, uh, indeed a plethora of countries with anti-corruption laws now, uh, get, looking, no doubt, to get on the uh, enforcement gravy train of uh, fines and penalties. But uh, kind of an interesting uh, way to think about not only how laws come into uh, be enacted, but how they are enforced and the different pressures that are put on organizations, um, or rather the different pressures organizations can put on governments uh, really to help facilitate business uh, on a worldwide basis. So, Tom, I know in the open we talked a little bit about the Houston Astros and their impending march to the World Series, but the Astros were not Houston's only team in the news this week. Could you tell us about Daryl Morey and how Adam Silver reacted to his tweet? Talk about a, a tempest starting in a teapot and literally exploding in in an unexpected way, no doubt for Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey sent out a tweet that said basically um, going beyond simply stay strong Alabama uh, in the face of a non-hurricane. Um, he said that uh, stand strong with uh, the protesters in Hong Kong. And this, this set, off, set off a blank storm across China. Uh, the Chinese government went bonkers over this. Uh, they are extraordinarily sensitive about Hong Kong. Uh Hong Kong is theirs, let's repeat. The British gave it to them 20 years ago. Uh, Anyone who's followed the news in Hong Kong should not be surprised at all that here 20 years later the uh, Chinese are are trying to do what they're doing in Hong Kong, but Hong Kong is theirs. It's not the British. So uh, anyway, they're very, very sensitive about this. They uh, basically told Houston to fire Daryl Morey or else. Uh, They told the NBA to fire Daryl Morey or else. Uh, fortunately, Tillman Fertitter, the owner of the Houston Rockets, recognizing that Maury is, if not the best, one of the best GMs in be- basketball, if not all of sports, did not fire him. He did chastise him, though. Uh, he said he didn't speak for the Houston Rockets, and I'm sure he took uh, had a meeting at the um, – took him to the shed, as they would say, um, for a few choice words. Uh, Adam Silver originally gave a statement that seemed completely subservient and obsessed to uh, the Chinese. Uh, And then the next day, Adam Silver came back and said, you know, free speech is one of our core values, and we're going to stand up with people who stand up for free speech. So uh, Adam Silver stood up uh, a little bit. Um, The president uh, attacked Steve Kerr. And the uh, who's the coach of the Spurs and um, Greg Popovich, the head of uh, uh, Steaker, sorry, is the head of uh, uh, the Warriors. Um, Greg Popovich is the head of the San Antonio Spurs, the, the coach, for uh, not attacking the Chinese. Of course, Trump has not said one boo word about 
the Hong Kong protesters and indeed has told the Chinese he won't do that because he wants a trade deal. So um, typical hypocrisy from the president. Nevertheless, uh, we have this entire storm now and the Chinese cut off basketball televised rights to the Houston Rockets. The Houston Rockets had minor league teams that were going to play in China. They were prevented from playing in China. Uh, there were was a game last night. I think it was the Nets and Lakers that was allowed to proceed, but it was not televised. The uh, signage uh, went down around the NBA. The Chinese are very upset about this, and it really points up um, a very difficult set of problems, choices, and actions every company must make if they're doing business in a company like country like China. If you mention Taiwan, that is verboten uh, in um, China, and it may be uh, may get to be that mentioning Hong Kong is verboten. The NBA, of course, uh, prides itself as being the leading uh, sports league around social issues and social justice. So uh, uh, the irony of Donald Trump calling out Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr for not calling out the Chinese is not lost on anyone who follows uh, sports. But it's just a a huge storm. And um, Nike is going to get dragged into this now. Uh, I think Nike had $116 billion cap mark, market cap, much higher than the NBA. A uh, lot of shoes to be sold in uh, China, a uh, lot of products to be sold in China. So uh, everyone, I think, is, is understanding that they have to watch everything they say and have to think about it. Uh, today, my trainer and I were talking about this, and he said, Maury's one of the smartest guys. He, w- he should have known. I'm like, you know, he is a smart guy. He's a quanto. He's not a qualitative guy. And it'd be like me, you know, trying to opine on the uh, vicissitudes of E equal MC squared. Um, he had no idea what he was getting himself into. And I'm sure he's sorry that he did, but he did. And what the NBA does going forward, I think is going to be very telling uh, for a lot of American businesses. Good stuff, Tom. Uh, next week, what do we have on tap for your weekly podcast view or your daily podcast viewers? So, yeah, Jay, um, very excited. Uh, you previewed it a little bit without previewing it when you talked about your uh, article on CCI this week on the chief compliance officer's role in culture. Well, next week, we've got a five-part podcast series uh, myself and Jay, but you'll, if you listen, it's mainly Jay, uh, uh, in a series sponsored by Affiliated Monitors on exploring ethical culture in a corporation. We have a five-part series. We look at what is ethical culture, how do you influence ethical culture, what are the factors of ethical culture, what's the role of the CCO, how do you assess ethical cultures, and what's the role of ethical culture in an overall ethics and compliance program. It's a really interesting series. You know, kudos to you, Jay, for uh, kind of doing the legwork on this to put it together. It was a lot of fun for me to uh, to produce it with you. Uh, each episode will go up on Monday through Friday on the FCPA Compliance Report and JD Supra. It will post to YouTube on Saturday the twelfth. It will um, binge drop on iTunes at midnight on uh, Monday the uh, 14th, I believe. So if you want to line them all all up and listen to them, they'll be available for listening. We link to Jay's articles in each one of these uh, posts if they're available. And it's a great series. 
and uh, I'm I'm really coming around to thinking, Jay, that uh, it, it it used to be location, location, location. Then it became document, document, document. But it may be culture, culture, culture going forward. Well, we'll we'll see if we can make that bold statement after next week. So, uh, anything else from from the sports world? Well, we're recording this before the Astros uh, beat um, Tampa Bay tonight and start our. Uh, an inexorable next step in playing the New York Yankees and the ALCS, which will start in Houston on Friday night. Um, the Astros will be in Houston on Friday, win or lose tonight. So I'm pretty confident in that statement. Because if they win, they'll be playing. If they lose, they'll be at home. So uh, looking forward to the game tonight. Looking forward to some great baseball and great football uh, this weekend with Mrs. Compliance Evangelist. And I guess I will look forward to some football. I can't, you know, describe it as being great or lacking, but the uh, the New England Patriots, without Antonio Brown, are playing the New York football giants. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But, Danny uh, Dimes. Danny Dimes. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 175 for the week ending October 11th, the NBA steps in an addition. Enjoy the Astros, enjoy football, and uh, if you're here in the U.S., enjoy the NBA. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay or Jay Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week when we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught, which caught our eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.